We have to think about self-care as the difference between functioning and flourishing. So when we're functioning, we are doing something for the express purpose of that action being done. Like I am grocery shopping for the express function of having food to feed myself and sustain myself. Flourishing is what I call doing for the sake of being. And just to break that down, I am doing an activity for the sake of being a better, happier version of myself. So I am reading a book, not because I must learn a core competency for work, but because reading a novel or a nonfiction book brings me joy. That's functioning versus flourishing. And to me, self-care is all about flourishing. The idea of job security is outdated as a landline. If you haven't been in a search for a while, it's probable you will at some point, by choice or not. Most executives admit to staying way too long or sense what's coming and justify staying anyway. Here, there's another reason. The faulty belief that navigating to what's next will inevitably be worse and has to suck. Screw that. Lauren Greif has spent a lifetime in corporate and executive search, calling bullshit on stale career advice that most still use. This is Career Blast in a Half, the career podcast for executives ready to cut past outdated career advice to fuel your outcomes now. So let's go. Starting something major. And the reason why we're doing this is because I feel like a little bit of a stalker. And I've been following you and reading like tidbits all over the place. I feel like our paths have crossed so many times. And here we are today. For those of you who are not in our studio, I am here with the Randy Braun. She is the author of Something Major. And Something Major is a playbook that we're going to talk about for some new moves and plays outside of the Super Bowl, outside of a lot of other things that women in particular, but also men really need to understand in order to overcome some of the age old myths and essentially redefine what success. So happy to have you here. And you're in New York and I'm not, but I feel like the New York spirit is like loud and proud right now. Last time we spoke, I was in New York, which is where I grew up. Today, I'm broadcasting from my house in D.C., but like any other New Yorker, I feel like once you're a New Yorker, you're always a New Yorker. So I'm also in New York in my heart today. Okay. What led you to uncover something major? I know there's a great backstory there, and I also know that you've told this story, and it has made people laugh, cry, moved beyond belief because your story and all those threads are pulling it and so many of our heartstrings and so many of the ways that we identify both as women and people who oftentimes um, get ourselves in, I guess you could say the overproductivity trap. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell some very raw stories about myself in this book, including about hitting my own kind of rock bottom in those productivity traps and those stories and those myths that we tell each other. But the story of how I wrote this book, um, Something Major, the new playbook for women at work, is a little bit more lighthearted. Um, don't worry, Lauren, we'll take out the tissues later. Um, okay. But, you know, 
I, there were so many books out there, I felt like, Lauren, about how we can thrive at work and what to do when we're burned out and how to get a new job and make the most of a new job. And I was on the phone a few years ago with an executive and she had done everything right over the years. She had gone to Harvard for graduate school. She had taken on all the stretch roles, the mentors, the PNL, the people. And she was stepping, it was a January day. She was stepping into this huge new role at this global company that you definitely know. And just in a quiet moment on the phone, she confessed to me. She said, you know what? I just have no desire. I don't even remember the last time I was in the mood. And she wasn't talking about that thing. She was talking about work and her passion for a career that she had really built by doing everything quote unquote right. And all she was really left with was what I call a bad case of low work libido, right? And unfortunately, Lauren, there's just, there's no little blue pill. And so I got curious. I said, okay, um, where else am I seeing this? Because everywhere in my coaching practice, I was seeing people who had seemingly played by all the right rules. And even if they were successful on paper, they weren't enjoying their success. And so I got curious about the new competencies we needed to feel empowered to write our own new playbook on. Mm. Ding, 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 ding. I mean, literally, I feel like I'm in Las Vegas and all like all the bells and whistles are going off because I, I too am witness to a lot of this and that low work or low interest libido is pervasive. Of course, not just with women, with men. And so like with all this research, Tell us the secret. What's what's behind that? Why does that happen? And is it more prevalent in one sex over another? Is it happening at a you know certain age threshold? Where where does this come from and why? You know, Lauren, as one of my clients said to me, and I told her, I said to her, I wish you would have said this before my book went to publication. But as one of my clients said to me, she's like, you know, I just realized that I have to stop shooting all over myself. And I just like, I was coaching her. I almost spit out my coffee. I was like, that is hysterical. And I think that so many of us live under this tyranny of should. So I don't want to make generalizations between men and women. Um, and I don't even within a single sex or, you know, for our gender non-conforming folks who might be listening here, I don't want to generalize anything to anybody because you know, every single person, Lauren, your podcast has this incredible reach, has a different leadership story, a different origin story, a different lived experience. However, one of the things I will say is that like, I think there are people in our society who feel the shoulds more than others. I think sometimes women feel the shoulds more than others. I think regardless of people's gender, um, people who come, our colleagues from marginalized communities feel a lot of the shoulds, right? Because our work world is evolved to favor you know, basically the success of people who don't look like me and you, right? I wrote once heard male and pale. Um, and so if you don't fit into that structure, um, there's a lot of internal storytelling, a lot of socialization and macro storytelling about what it is that we need to do so that we should be successful. We should conform. And I think we're living through this really golden age, even though we have these achy growing pains of really redefining what success can be in our workplaces. I'm hopeful that overall we'll get to a better place than where we are. I think we've seen a lot of really negative backsliding on certain things. Um, but, you know, I think it's really about taking the time to redefine our own new playbook for success. All right. I want to talk about this number one myth. I'm going to, I really think it's like 
a huge one because we're all guilty of it. And yeah. I am here raising both hands at the same time and saying guilty as charged. This myth around doing, 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 productivity, productivity. And also in, in concert with that is, is this idea that there is an equation, right? That there is this work and then there is the outcome that's going to come from success. And we talk about like, oh, don't grind and don't grind. And I don't think that people are bullshitting when they say, I don't want to grind, but we can also fall into that same trap all over yeah. again. So help us understand like how to break the equation. I always say, Lauren, I'm pro-hustle, I'm anti-hustle culture. So for me, like hustle culture is when we, and I know that that, that term has become a little fraught lately. Um, but when I think about hustle culture, I think about the need to perform our productivity. In my book, I coined this term called performative productivity culture, where we make decisions through a system of norms in our workplaces where performing our commitment to grinding takes precedence over the impact of our actual actions and contributions. So I'm anti anti-hustle culture, I'm anti-performative productivity. However, I am very pro-hustling. And what I mean by that is like, to me, to hustle is to follow your ambition, to be relentless about pursuing your dreams. However, we need to make sure that we don't overwork ourselves. And I personally, Lauren, fell into this trap a few years ago. Um, we're actually recording on the day that marks the four-year anniversary of taking my business from part-time to full-time. Um, and so I took my business full time shortly before the COVID-19 pandemic. The world shut down. I had a one and a half year old, a three and a half year old. My husband had just quit his job on February 2nd at IBM to be the first employee at a startup. So when I tell you it was like crisis mode in our house in March 2020, we like didn't know what was going to happen. Like, were we going to be able to pay our bills? Like, what was going to happen? And, um, both of us just threw ourselves kind of like into work. We both loved and were passionate about what we did. And I thought as the months went on, like I do this work for a living, Lauren, like I thought I had my exhaustion under control, but I was actually really burrowing in work as a place of procrastination, where it was the one area in my life where I could feel in control. And I didn't realize how tired I was. I was actually gaslighting myself. Until I fell asleep driving my car in broad daylight in June 2020 in one of the busiest intersections in downtown Washington, D.C., and I passed through not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but six lanes of traffic, including like the entrance to a highway on-ramp, before coming to a screeching halt inches away from a pedestrian. And when I tell you I was literally hysterical, I don't normally like to use that word because I think it has all these really misogynistic Victorian connotations, but there's no other way to describe how I felt that day. And for a long time, Lauren, I carried that with shame because I was like, if people know this about me, like, will they ever hire me to teach a workshop? Will they ever hire me to be their coach? And I started getting more curious and I'll pause here, but I started getting more curious about what is it that got me to the point where me, like doing what I do for a living, could fall into a trap where I was so at distance from my self-care, so entrapped in my exhaustion, and so unconscious of the space that I got myself into. And so I just started getting really curious about that. And I ended up developing what I call the five self-care myths that I find high performers fall into. 
Um, but that's kind of my own personal story. And I like to tell people that because I know I'm not the only person who feels ashamed about the lows that we've gotten to with our exhaustion. Would you please share your five myths with us, please? And I, I have this sneaky suspicion that I'm going to be signing up for all five because yes. I, not not because I, I want to jump on and, and share your shame. I, I have enough of my own, but I, I'm happy to happy to partner with you. And um, <laughs> because I. I have fallen into every single one of those and and part part of my my reason why is oftentimes I feel like guilt, work is a guilty pleasure for me. It's as good as the Bee Gees. Like I love it so much that sometimes I can like overindulge in it the same way that I do like coffee and sugar. You know, it's like sometimes it's just like so good it gets really we really geeked up. But there's a, a limit. So help us, please, with your five minutes. Absolutely. I think that everyone listening to this podcast can relate to that, right? I think that, and I think that's an important part of the story, Lauren, that we need to be talking about, about like, sometimes like, you know, the exhaustion can come from a unbalanced love and commitment to our work, right? Especially if we're having anyone listen who's maybe even like self-employed, or maybe you're at the tip top of your organization, you're the CEO and, you know, it's coming from you, really, really like the buck stops with you. I think that I see that a lot in my coaching practice of women who are so committed, especially to being like servant leaders, that they don't realize that they're over serving everyone else. And then they have no energy, Lauren, left for like a Bee Gees disco dance party on Saturday night for themselves. You said like work is like the Bee Gees for you. But give so us, I can walk give us the first myth so, yeah, that, so, so that we can um, bust it. I'll walk you through the myths just really quickly. And, and how I came up with these, Lauren, wasn't like, oh, I was hysterical. And then like three days later, I had these. You know, like every great coach, while looking for answers, um, rather than assuming I know everything, I just started asking lots of curious questions to the clients in my coaching practice, to my friends, to my own loved ones. And what became three myths became four, became five. So the first myth is that self-care is a luxurious indulgence, right? And what it sounds like in my coaching practice is, oh, you know, Randy, um, I would love to do more self-care, but I just took time off for Christmas. I don't have another vacation scheduled until my kids' spring break. So luxurious is a um, self-care is a luxurious indulgence. I just don't have time to for it. That's number one. Can you um, give us number, the difference yes. between self-care and luxurious indulgence? Say it one more time. Can you break those two things apart? So I I want to know what is defined as luxurious indulgence? Is having a facial? luxurious indulgent and how might that differ from self-care? Yeah. So I think of self-care just to back up for a second. Um, I think about, we have to think about self-care as the difference between functioning and flourishing, right? Mm. So when we're functioning, we are doing something for the express purpose of that action being done. Like I am grocery shopping for the express function of having food to feed myself and sustain myself. Or I hear a lot of people saying, you know what, um, like I'm going to fold laundry while I listen to my favorite podcast and that's my self-care. And I would push back my second myth, you know, one of my myths is that maintenance is self-care. And I think that's where the functioning and flourishing comes into attention is like, no, no, maintenance is something you must do, but maintenance cannot be self-care. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Um, but like functioning is doing for the sake of doing flourishing, which is what self-care inspires Lauren 
Flourishing is what I call doing for the sake of being. And just to break that down, I am doing an activity for the sake of being a better, happier version of myself. So I am reading a book, not because I must learn a core competency for work, but because reading a novel or a nonfiction book brings me joy. I am going to an exercise class. I am choosing to opt out. Sometimes self-care is setting a boundary. I'm choosing to opt out on a gathering because the action of doing that creates a state of being that is elevated, healthier, and more supportive for myself. So that's functioning versus flourishing. And to me, self-care is all about flourishing. Mm. Powerful distinction. I really, really love that because... I'm sure that I mix and match those all the time <laughs> and actually put placeholders in things that don't belong. So that's really, really helpful, at least for me and I know for our audience, for sure. Myth and number three. Yeah, and it's funny because it's like such a lightning rod topic because truly, like, sometimes, like, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, as I would say to my five-year-old. Like, I am not here to yuck your yum. Um, and so, like, someone's like, well, like, my self-care is is a facial, and that is a luxurious indulgence. And one of the things, Lauren, that we need to do is we need to remember that self-care, it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be spiritual, it can be intellectual. So, like, facials can't be the only thing in your toolkit. Like, we need to find other self-care to prop you up. So we talked about maintenance can't be self-care. We talked about self-care is a luxurious indulgence. Myth number three is it's just this season of life. That's what I call this method. It's just this season of life. So if the issue isn't my stress, this is what it sounds like in my coaching practice, Lauren. If the issue isn't my stress, it's just I need to get through Christmas. I need to get through the holidays with my in-laws. I need to get through this big QBR. I need to get through this big project at work. Lauren, the truth is it's always a season of life. And when it's this season of life, we need the self-care more than ever. Oh. Mm. <laughs> yes. I, I get really um agitated when it, it these outside circumstances are the reasons why we have some kind of hall pass that says that we don't need to do x y or z and then the next thing comes up and then the next thing comes up and there is always something and that's life a hundred percent and I, I try to remind people all the time that it's like, it's, it's always going to be life. And I think that brings us into the segue of myth number four, which is the myth of self-discipline. So a lot of times I hear from people, you know, they're venting to me again in coaching about how stressed out they are. And then they'll kind of stop themselves and self-regulate and say, you know what? Um, the issue isn't my self-care. The issue is I'm not disciplined enough. If I was more productive, if I was more on top of my to-do list, not only would I be less stressed out, but I, I would have time for the self-care I wouldn't even need. And I don't know about you, Lauren, and who you spend time with, but I spend my time with really high-functioning, really high-performing leaders. I have never met any of them who actually require more discipline at all. Um, and so we have to stop like shaming ourselves into saying the problem is me. Sometimes the problem is you and your choices, the boundaries, your choices of activities. But rarely in my experience does that myth hold up to reality. Often it's a set of superhuman perfectionistic expectations we have for ourselves. And then the fifth myth, which I think is the myth that I was really trapped in that day, Lauren, in the car, is the myth of I should be grateful. And it sounds a lot like this. Um, and I think this is what I was thinking that day in the pandemic is, you know, like, I know I've been taking on a lot, but I should just be so grateful that like I launched my business right before COVID and it's been gangbusters. 
or I should be so grateful that everyone in my family is healthy. And that's why I'm in the car right now running around these crazy errands because like we need diapers and there's a supply chain shortage and I need to go to CVS to get the diapers um, with all my PPE on. So, you know, and the, the truth about that myth, Lauren, is that like when we bully ourselves with our gratitude, that's not a form of self-love and self-care. That actually prevents us from being able to enjoy the successes and the life that we're so-called so grateful for. And so I really want us to get to a point where we can unhook from these five myths, right? Self-care is a luxurious indulgence. Maintenance is self-care. I should be grateful. It's just this season of life and self-discipline to say, you know what? My feelings are allowed to coexist. I'm allowed to feel stressed and blessed. But what I find is just getting awareness around like which one of these messages bounces around your brain or which one of these stories you get trapped in, it's not a panacea, right? It's not like, oh, I know my myth, I'm over it. It's about the awareness becomes a conduit to action to change the way we make small choices and reframe decisions that we might otherwise autopilot on. Mm. All of this and so major, I mean, seriously, powerful, powerful insights that I also have to kind of resurface as we are here in the beginning of the new year, which is one of the peak seasons for shoulds, right? And, and goal setting and all this, and everybody's got their word and their theme and, you know, LinkedIn is spackled with all this kind of stuff. And so as we are applying these myths, right, or, or now, as you mentioned, the conduit to new actions. What are some of the ways that we can actually hold ourselves accountable to undoing some of this work? And I don't mean undoing like, ooh, you're bad. I mean, course correcting some of those things. So we don't end up fried and, 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 and putting ourselves, gosh forbid, um, at, you know, huge risks. I mean, you're, you're a, a living miracle. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's what we forget, Lauren, is that our health is for most of us, for most people listening, the only life or death thing we actually deal with at work. If you are a doctor, if you are a first responder, if you're a firefighter and you're listening, thank you for being in life and death situations every single day. Um, but unless you perform one of those life and death activities day in and day out, we forget that our health is the only thing. And, and Lauren, I'll give you some tips, but I, I just want to share one more data point, which is that according to Harvard Medical School, that day that I got behind the wheel of my car, even though it was an afternoon, I was stone cold sober. According to Harvard Medical School, I was drunk because Harvard Medical School research has shown that showing up to work chronically exhausted has the same level of cognitive impairment as having a blood alcohol level above the legal limit to drive. That's a really jargony way of saying when you show up to work exhausted, you are essentially showing up to work drunk. And so one of my tips for you is it's really simple. If you wouldn't rip three shots of tequila before you record a podcast with Lauren, if you wouldn't do a keg stand before you get on a Zoom call with your colleagues or clients, why have we said that it's okay to essentially show up drunk to work? So getting curious, 
Number two is like, we just have to raise the bar. We have to raise the bar on what's acceptable. And I can't do that for you. You need to do that for you. So like, for example, Lauren, this myth of maintenance, right? Um, I always tell people that to say your maintenance is self-care, like I have clients who are like, I don't understand, Randy. Like I had my me time. I went to Target. I left my work phone at home. I had my podcast in. I got my toilet paper. I got the oil changed on my car and I still don't feel good. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't feel good because you literally went grocery shopping. Like that is, that is maintenance. And I explained to people, or we got to raise the bar because to say your maintenance activities are self-care activities is like saying, I'm going to get in my car on one of these hundred degree summer days. And I'm going to treat myself to air conditioning today. That is not a treat yourself moment. That is literally not dying from heat stroke. Okay. Treat yourself, not dying from heat stroke. We have to raise the bar from from not dying of heat stroke to actually like turning on the AC and enjoying the ride, right? And so just two other things that I'll share here in terms of like lightning rounding some tips. Um, two other tips that I'll share besides raising the bar, right? Besides remembering that you don't want to show up drunk. Like that's just, Lauren, like whether or not you're doing dry January, it's not a good look to show up drunk at work. I think we can agree on that, okay? So like just a few more tips that I'll lightning round here. Number three, is that we have to understand and unpack self-care, quote unquote, guilt. And a lot of times, Lauren, I hear people tell me, you know, I'd like to do more self-care, but I feel guilty. And I remind people, guilt is an emotion that we feel when we act in a way that is not in line with our values. I'm going to repeat that again. Guilt is an emotion that we feel when we act in a way that's not in line with our values. So like if I was to like, like Lauren, truth and candor is a value of mine. If I was to sit and lie to you about something, I would probably feel guilty about that because I crossed my own code of conduct. Tell me a person who has ever gone for a run or booked a therapy appointment and that violated their code of conduct. A lot of times we use guilt as a stand-in for FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. And a lot of times we say that we're guilty when we're actually just afraid of how other people are going to judge us for setting a boundary or carving out the time. So you need to work through that. Am I having guilt or FOPO? Um, and then finally, my biggest piece of advice is to experiment with what I call micro choices. What are the small things you're saying yes to? What are the small things you're saying no to? So like I said that like I wanted to get back into meditation last year. And instead of like signing up for like a six month, $700 program, I literally committed to doing a five minute meditation five days a week. Very small choices of things I said yes to and said no to. So I'll pause there, Lauren. There's so much more I could say. You tell me how this is landing with you. Oh, God. It's fantastic. It's landing so great, too. And I know that all of whether they be lightning rounds or some of these other ones are game changers. I know that we're talking about a playbook, but honestly, I, I, I want to reinforce this whole notion that the choice, the sign up for taking care of yourself is, is something that you get to do. Like you, you, it's okay. Like you don't need a, a permission slip or anything like that. And I, I, I don't know if that necessarily fits into one of your myths or I, I, I often hear people saying these things like, should I, can I, can I do this? You know, what am I going to say? You're a grown ass woman. You're a grown ass man. Like you own this, you own this. You gotta, you've got to really 
be able to embrace it because what I wanted to really ask you as this is playing out full circle and you talked about flourishing, but what is the the linchpin or the or the change agent that happens when we do these things like self-care? Yes, we're flourishing, but that might be short-lived. How does this actually work over an extended period of time? Not just for us, right? Self-care sounds like it's very selfish and indulgent, but what kind of echo effect and cumulative outcome does it have for other people? I think that there are so many downstream effects for ourselves and for the other people in our orbit. So number one, Lauren, there is so much research out there about how taking care of yourself is a conduit to your longevity. So like you have to think about your self-care the way an athlete thinks about training. Like I think about someone like LeBron James, right? Like one of the most prolific, famous athletes of our time. LeBron James is so serious about his training regimen, about his physical therapy, about his sports massage, about his diet. And it has unequivocally been a huge driver of his ability to stay in the NBA and perform at a certain level beyond statistically like where his career should have peaked, right? So like we all need to channel a little bit of that LeBron James energy and think about like use that metaphor of being an athlete because your self-care equals your longevity. You cannot burn yourself out um, at the top. I've had multiple clients who over the years before they came to me had been hospitalized for exhaustion and things like that. Like this is very, very serious. So number one, it's all about the longing. Number two, you know, when we think about leadership, Lauren, we want to think about what we're modeling for the other people around us. Like, do you want to be the boss who is answering emails from Tulum, Mexico um, on your family vacation? Do you want to be the colleague who is sending emails while your partner is in the delivery room. Like these are real things that happen. And so we talk a lot about culture. Well, like culture is what happens when we add up a lot of small actions. Um, and so I think if we think about what's important in our culture, it's so important that we think about modeling this. And one of the incredible executives that I interviewed for my book, um, Neka Chiaizor, she's a senior executive at Cox Communications. This is something she talks a lot about and something that she thinks about is really essential to her leadership style. She's like, if my team sees me not taking care of myself, then they feel like they don't have permission to take care of themselves. And she's someone who has, you know, she also, as I tell her story in my book, she also had a near-death experience, um, actually much more um, scary than mine, um, with really like just pushing through exhaustion. And she came out of that on the other side and really her career flourished. Um, and today she's a very senior leader at Cox by really like leading with self-care, practicing it, which is something I talk about in my book on a daily weekly, monthly, yearly basis. So just my final tip, Lauren, to that end would be, it's really important to remember, like you have a whole toolkit of self-care. Like self-care can be how you take care of yourself physically. It could be emotionally, like setting boundaries or getting together with people you love. It can be cultivating intellectual interests. It can be spiritual, like mindfulness, meditation, being part of an organized religious community. Um, but there are so many different ways to tap into self-care. And if you're feeling like you don't know where to start, my biggest piece of advice is like, get curious. Like one, what's something you used to love doing that you swear you don't have time for that you could create a five or 10 or 15 minute version of? Um, two, like where do you need to plan better? 
Like, how do you need to be blocking your calendar the way that you plan your whole week and your to-do list? Like, where are you on that to-do list? And like three, like really thinking about setting your goals with integrity. So maybe like a lot of self-care is free. Some of the things we want to do, we have to save money for, right? So like really thinking about like down to your financial planning, your calendar planning, your energy planning. Um, but in my big, in my experience, Lauren, the biggest inflection points for people are seizing these five minute moments. And there's actually research from Harvard Business School about how these micro moments of self-care really do make a measurable difference in how we feel and how other people perceive, how other people perceive us. Mm. All right. Here we go with my lightning round. This is excellent. So the first question I'd love to ask is, is there a post-it, a gentle reminder, something that we could do that is stemming from some of the myths or advice or tips that you've offered that you would suggest we have close by? Yeah, my biggest, it's not a post-it, it's like calendar blocking it. Like I'm sitting here like Lauren talking to you, looking at my calendar as I'm saying this to you. And like, I see on my calendar, like where I go on a walk in the morning. I see on my calendar where I sit down and have lunch. I see on my calendar where I wrap it up for the day. I see in my calendar where I go to a fitness class. So I calendar it with the same integrity that I calendar my commitments to work. Beautiful. I won't even ask you what book you're going to recommend to do this because we're going to be like all over this something major. I'm excited for this. So check those, check the link down in the show notes. And then also your walk-up song. So I have <laughs> oh to know. Oh my gosh. Um, I love that. So um, I used to have a different walk-up song, but I was at a conference recently and someone else's walk-up song was I'm Every Woman. And let me tell you something, in 2024, that's going to be my new walk-up song. All right. Um, but Lauren, in addition to my book, would it be okay if I shared a few recommendations of other books I absolutely love? Hello. Yes. Of okay. course. Just really quickly. So my book, Something Major, The New Playbook for Women at Work, it just came out in paperback. So like everything yes. we talked about in, in chapters eight, nine, and 10 today. So you're welcome on that. Um, but there's another book I absolutely love. I'm looking on my shelf. It's called Time Smart by Dr. Ashley Willens at Harvard Business School. And it's not about self-care per se, but it's about understanding how high performers and successful people use their time and places where we're time poor and time rich. Um, this book changed my life a few years ago. Dr. Willens is probably the most quoted academic in my book, and I highly recommend it. All right. So listen, everyone. Make sure if you haven't already, get a move on it and go find Randy on LinkedIn, Randy Braun. I also have her link for her website and of course her books um, in her website, but also please take good care of yourself and practice some self-care and calendar the time that you need so that you are flourishing. And if you want to help us flourish, please, please, please write us a podcast review on Apple Music and we would be so thrilled and delighted. That's how we are taking care of ourselves through the love of other people and all the listeners that we have. Randy Braun, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're such a, you're such a force in all the good ways. Such a pleasure, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Thank you for joining today. We appreciate your listening ears. Big time. 
We ask this, use these tools, not tomorrow, right now, and share them by spreading the love, leaving us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss the next career blast in a half. Most of all, thank you for you.